With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So if you like hunting for buried pirate treasure, then I think you're going to like this podcast. So I have Robert Kirsten on the phone. Robert, how's it going? I'm doing great, James. How about you? Very good, Robert, particularly since I just finished your book, Pirate Hunters, The Search for the Lost Treasure Ship of a Great Buccaneer, just coming out June 16th, which is probably the day this podcast is going to be released, so it's coming out today. And it's a nonfiction book about, I mean, there's lots of stories within stories here. Basically, everybody throughout this book, including you, gave up traditional careers (laughs) to pursue their dreams, but particularly the two guys who, who feature prominently in your book, John Chatterton and John Matera, they kind of gave up everything to search for basically sunken treasure, sunken pirate ships, and they more or less achieved their dreams. Like they kind of got some degree of happiness and, and finding their goals doing this, would you say? Yeah, absolutely, James. They were at a point in their lives where things were actually kind of comfortable for them after having very interesting and different kinds of lives going in. And everybody in their lives suggested to them that they should kind of take it easy now. They were both in their 50s. And, you know, buy a Dunkin' Donuts franchise or get an apartment building to run. But neither of these guys was willing to do that. Each saw that as a kind of fate worse than death. I, I have a couple questions about that, Robert, and I'm sorry if I if I interrupt. I tend to be an interrupter. Oh, not at all. First off, John Matera, uh, I guess slightly younger than John Chatterton, he did everything from running nightclubs to practically being raised by the mafia. But he was like almost a historian of the two. Like he was, he was like this incredibly... I'm not going to say academic because it's not like he was educated in this, but he loved history so much he was able to pinpoint where all these sunken ships from the 1600s were in the middle of the ocean. Right, James. And not only did he run nightclubs as a young guy, he owned and ran nightclubs before he was old enough to enter them by law. This guy grew up on the streets of Staten Island after having a loan sharking business and buying nightclubs at the age of 15 and 16 that, like I said, he couldn't enter by law, he took this swerve in his life where he became a beat cop. But through all the turmoil and violence and uh, unsettlingness in his life growing up, 
he had one passion that survived and endured him through everything, and that was history. So here's a guy who was a very, very tough customer on the streets of Staten Island who could have really gone either way in life, but who held on to his love of history. And that love of history is really what's going to deliver him and his partner in the in the search for this pirate ship. And so it's interesting. It's it's nothing that he specifically learned in school, and it's nothing that he started his career at. You know, I just read a statistic the other day. The average person changes career approximately 14 times in their lives. And it's sort of against the traditional view of education where you're educated for a specific career and job and that's what you, you know, grow old in and then retire and get the watch and, you know, get a, a little house in Fort Lauderdale or whatever. He, he had none of that. Like no. he, he basically said, I'm going to do what I'm interested in. People say, Oh, you're interested in history. How are you going to make a living at that? The guy was, was diving for ships that had $500 million worth of gold on them. Absolutely. And he was completely convinced he could not only find these ships, but bring them up. And those are two different things. And he was convinced of this largely because he had been reading about this since he was a little boy. He believed that as long as his heart was driven and that he was speaking to his passions, nothing could stop him. So little interferences like killings or setbacks or um, – the life of a beat cop weren't going to get in his way because he knew from a very young age this is what he was supposed to be doing. A lot of people are always curious, well, what's my passion? What's the thing I should be doing? Clearly, you know, John Matera made his contribution to the world by taking a huge risk. He gave up every career he had been trained in to kind of go back to this childhood dream and figure out how to make not just a living from it, but to create true wealth and, and actual, actually a contribution to our historical knowledge about this era. But do you think in, in the same way these guys dig for treasure, you think we could dig for our purpose in life by looking at what we were fascinated by as a 10-year-old? I think that may be the, the best place and the first place to always look. I know very few people in life who seem to be doing what they were meant to be doing, who are speaking to their passions, who wouldn't have told you that at age 10, that would have spoken to them at that point too. Uh, it's hard to imagine someone saying, I'm truly unhappy, happy in life now, but I never could have guessed at this when I was 10. Well, so so this brings me actually, and I, I want to get back to these guys because it's a, a fascinating story how they found uh, Joseph Bannister's pirate ship. It was the second pirate find ever, plus you know their their contribution to history, the 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 wealth that's created, and so on. But I want to get back to that in a second. And I want to get to your story. So this is your second book, essentially, about John Chatterton. You wrote um, Shadow Divers was the first one where he finds a German U-2 boat off the coast of New Jersey, of all places. But before that, you were like a lawyer, right? Yes, I spent uh, a few very unhappy years as a lawyer, desperate to find my own passion, but not really understanding what it was. Did you know from the age of 10 that you loved writing, that you wanted to be a writer? And, and by the way, when I say you loved writing and you wrote these books, you were 24 weeks on, was it the New York Times bestseller list with Shadow Divers? And I have no doubt you're going to be on the, on the bestseller list with this book. I mean, right on the cover, uh, Lee Child, one of the biggest bestsellers ever, calls this a great thriller full of tough guys and long odds. And it's all true. And it is, it's, it is like a, a nonfiction thriller, what you wrote here. So this is, this is like got bestseller all over it. 
Well, thank you, James. You know, I don't know at age 10 if I could have told you then I'm destined to be a writer, but certainly looking back on it and thinking about uh, what moved me, um, the idea of stories and storytelling was everything to me. I grew up in a family where my father was the primary traveling salesman for his own very small motorcycle paints and lubricants business. He was on the road all by car for nine or 10 months out of the year. And so in order that you know, we didn't grow up feeling fatherless. He and my mom decided that I should go with him on several of these trips. So I don't know, I don't even know if you could do this these days, James, but they used to call me out of school for two or three weeks at a time. And I used to go on the road with my dad, who was a phenomenal storyteller and just trade stories with him. So looking back at age 10 on the road for three weeks, and I've been in all 48 of the continental United States by the time I was eight, I think all by car. What we did was tell stories, and that's the thing that I really loved and I think I absorbed from him. So if you would have asked me then, what do you want to be when you grow up, I don't know that I could have enunciated it, but if you would have asked me then, would you like to grow up to tell a pirate story, I would have said, that's all I want to do. So what you're describing really, though, is an incredibly different way than than many people grew up. Like, I didn't drive around. My dad was a kind of salesman of sorts. I didn't go around with him to all 48 states, I basically had to stay at home and, and go to school. And, and you and I are probably roughly the same age. You know, so you had kind of this head start in the sense that, hey, things can be done differently than uh, the normal routine. That was everything to me. Nobody freaked out because I missed two or three weeks of school at a time. It was hard to shake my parents and make them panic. And looking back on it, that seems... Uh, I seem to have kind of absorbed that and it seems to have um, protected me in a certain way, almost like a talisman. Like what's the most disappointed your parents ever were in you? The only things I could remember them being disappointed in, uh, and this was primarily my mom, was when I would come home with very bad grades. And I had there was a lot of unrest in my house growing up also. And I remember her being disappointed in my grades, not because she was uh, afraid that uh, my poor grades wouldn't get me into college, which was a huge problem, by the way, but because she thought I wasn't uh, living up to my potential. The only other time I could think of any disappointment from my parents is when they perceived me to be in a career that was making me miserable. So, you know, after graduating from a fancy law school and then going into law practice and, and suffering every night I came home, um, what, that do you, what do you mean by them. suffering? Like, was it this sort of existential kind of suffering or are you an actual physical pain? It was existential suffering that caused physical pain. I was so miserable on my job and so ill-suited for it that time seemed to tick backwards in the office. And I had a very high paying job in a very fancy uh, high rise in Chicago. And every day was worse than the last. And I thought I'm in a living hell here and I don't know what I'm going to do or how to get out. I didn't think I knew how to do anything else. And when I expressed uh, how I was feeling to my parents, their disappointment wasn't in that I had wasted three years and $100,000 on a legal education, but that I wasn't thinking about getting out faster. Wow. So did they help you kind of figure out, hey, Robert, maybe you should write about something you're interested in? Or how did they? How did you kind of make the, the leap? And I, I want to tell you another example real quickly. I interviewed on this podcast uh, Peter Thiel, you know, the founder of PayPal, investor in Facebook and, and so on. He was a lawyer for Skadden Arps, a top law firm in, in New York City. And he realized he was unhappy like like you were. And decided to quit, move to Silicon Valley across the country and start 
PayPal. Um, he had done some other things as well. Um, but, but the day he was leaving, uh, the law firm, again, the top law firm in New York, everyone was like, you know, you're, you're escaping prison is what his, uh, his colleagues were telling him. I related to that so much when I heard it. And I have to tell you, when I got out from law and my friends, you know, my friends from law school said to me, how did you do it? How did you make the move? I said, I just had one lucky break more than the rest of you. And that's that I hated my job just a little bit more than the rest of you. And that was my secret. Well, what did you hate, though? Like, was a boss yelling at you or, or were you defending clients who were guilty? Like, what did you hate? Well, I was in a corporate and real estate law, so it was instantly impossible for me to care about the clients I was representing. I just didn't care whether Dress Barn had another good lease done or McDonald's franchisee made his pickles the right color of green. And that's one of my first cases. What, wait, wait, like did McDonald's sue a franchisee for not having the right color of green? Exactly. McDonald's was uh, shows in their franchisee book a range on the green spectrum uh, under which their pickles can fall. And this franchisee was making the pickles too bright a green and they were, and McDonald's was trying to take back the franchises. And I just didn't care. I, I understood that other people might care, especially for the good compensation we were getting, but I couldn't care. And worse than not being able to care, I wasn't good at it even when I tried to force myself to care. Okay. But, I, ha- but I have to ask though, why didn't he just make the right color green? I can't tell you that I remember why he didn't. All I can tell you is that I remember not caring why he didn't. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense that you don't remember then. Right. <laughs> so, so, okay. So then I guess you made the jump. How did you decide, okay, I'm going to be one of the best selling writers, you know, in history here. I didn't decide that at all. In fact, James, if I knew how difficult it was to make a living as a writer, I might have thought twice about it. Although I really was suffering so bad, I would have done anything to get out. What happened was I would come home from work every day uh, so despondent. I don't think despondent is too too strong a word. And really to numb the pain, I started to write stories about growing up just for myself And unlike at the office, um, the time seemed to fly when I was doing that. And I thought, this is a pretty good indication that this might be something to take a look at, writing. And when I woke up in the morning and and reread what I had written the night before, I could see that the stuff was pretty decent. I didn't know how it might fit in into the world of books and magazines, but I knew that if you were doing something where the time flew by and it seemed to be a, a quality job that was at least something to look into. And at that point, I had made... Uh, a lot of money, and I knew that a new BMW and a and a four thousand dollar stereo and a three thousand dollar bike weren't going to do it for me in life. And that was very lucky that I had a chance to buy those things and see that they didn't help. So I was really willing to do anything and jump off into the abyss. That's all I was thinking at the time. I really am impressed by that because let's just be clear. You said you went to a fancy law school. You went to Harvard Law School. Okay, so that that's like. The premium law school every lawyer wants to graduate from. So I'm assuming you had like the best legal job one could possibly get. And you basically said, okay, I'm going to write stories instead. Exactly right. I had really my choice of any job in the country, probably in the world, but they all seemed to be the same to me. And the people, worse than that, James, the people who were happy being lawyers, I didn't like personally. I think that's that's an important thing. I think that's an important way to judge whether you're in the right career. If you if you admire 
let's say the people who were in it maybe a few years longer than you. If you admire where they are, then you could stay because you're going in the right direction. But if you don't admire it, you should get the hell out. Right. I did not admire it and I did not admire them even worse. You know, it seemed that the the composition that was necessary, and I hate to generalize about this. I mean, my wife's a lawyer, so there are all kinds of exceptions, but the people I was seeing who were comfortable in their job as big firm attorney were not the kind of person I wanted to be. And that was a good sign that it was time to get out. That was the, and it didn't matter how you know, good my job prospects were if you were just going from one bad situation to another. And I viewed law as a bad situation. I mean, do you think it was the same kind of confidence that got you into Harvard that basically told you, oh, well, I can do anything. So I'm, I'm going to be now successful at something else. And I just have to pick what it is. Like, how did you have the confidence to to really make that leap? Well, I think it's from having failed before. And, you know, this is something I hear you talk about often, and it inspires me all the time. In high school, I was ranked number 606 out of 660 in my class. There were only 54 people dumber than I was. And it was I, my report card was filled, filled with Fs and Ds, and I, I couldn't get into any college. Um, I mean, no college I applied to took me. I was just lucky that the University of Wisconsin kind of gave me a flyer because uh, they had seen a little bit of um, – school newspaper writing that I had done. But the fact ah, that I So had, the, the writing kind of triggered it, was, it. There it was. And you know, I never intended to be a writer. Somebody asked me um, to write a couple concert reviews for the high school newspaper. And that's what the only thing that got me a little notice from University of Wisconsin, which gave me like a one semester probation tryout. But the fact that I had been through some things before where it looked hopeless for me and it looked like I had nowhere to go and I survived it really helped me, um, you know, jump into the, into the darkness out of law and just say, wherever I happen to land, I'll be okay. And, and your wife was supportive. Everyone was supportive. In my family, it was, I was incredibly lucky. They were all supportive and nobody viewed being unhappy as uh, the right option. You know, I'm kind of jealous a little bit. So, so obviously I know your brother, Ken Curson was, I think he was like my second or third guest on this podcast. He's the editor in chief of the New York Observer, one of my favorite newspapers. It's like the only newspaper I would ever even consider reading, actually, is edited by your brother. So you, and I've been to his house. He's got an incredibly strong, and I'm going to use the word loving family that he has surrounded himself with. And I, I'm not just talking about his, you know, wife and kids, but just the friends he surrounded himself with. You get that feeling when you're in his house. It's probably the same in your house. And it seems like you come from a very like great family. We come from a, a family that um, encourages taking risks and allows for, you know, an unconventional approach. My brother still does not have a college degree. He wrote Rudy Giuliani's. No way. Yeah, I did true. not know that. That is true. I hope I'm not outing him. You're totally but, outing him. I should have asked him about that on the podcast. Yeah, it's it's a it's comes as a shock to people, but here's a guy who was central to the Rudy Giuliani presidential campaign. He is the editor-in-chief of the New York Observer. He's got more accomplishments than you can ever believe, but he also was the bassist in one of the greatest power pop bands ever. He toured Europe. Which one? Which it was a, a group called Green in Chicago, which is a legendary local outfit here. You'll see them on a lot of people's lists of the 100 best unsung bands. And they were just phenomenal, James. And when it came time to go to college, instead of going to college, Ken went 
into this band that he loved and had loved forever. And he wasn't even a very experienced bass player at the time, but it was what he loved. And so this is a kid who is fearless, in my opinion, and who doesn't believe that just because he lacks certain traditional credentials, he can't do anything. He believes he's capable of doing anything. Obviously, you went into you ultimately went into similar paths. You became uh, this author. I believe he's written a book, but, but mostly he's been in journalism and you know and and oh, and he's been in politics. He was Rudy Giuliani's number two guy. So okay, so now how did you find? Shadow Diver. So you met, you must have met John Chatterton first before John Matera, which is what you later ended up writing about with Pirate Hunters. But how did you first uh, get involved with John Chatterton and end up writing Shadow Divers, which was 24 weeks on the New York Times bestselling list? Well, I was at that point, I had made the jump from law first into newspaper writing at the Chicago Sun Times and then to Esquire and Chicago Magazine. So I had written several magazine stories. And I just got a lucky phone call from a friend who told me to turn on PBS Nova, that there was this documentary on about these two guys who had found a German U-boat 60 miles off the New Jersey coast, and that it was filled with dead German sailors from World War II. And at the time, James, I really could not think of any subjects I was less interested in than U-boats or scuba diving or World War II. I couldn't even swim. But it must have occurred to you that the basic question, which I'm, of course I'm going to ask, what's the German U-boat doing in New Jersey? That's what I wanted to know. So I, I flipped on the, the, you know, the TV and watched PBS Nova talk about this. And it was fascinating. I mean, this was a really interesting story of a U-boat sent to America at the end of the war, and that it seemed to have disappeared into the abyss, into the ether, and that these two very ordinary guys, these blue-collar workers, John Chatterton and Richie Kohler, uh, had found this U-boat and then set out on a six-year obsessive quest to solve the mystery, not just of which U-boat this was, but who were the men inside and what it was doing in New Jersey of all places. But the one thing that I kept waiting for the documentary to address, and I was certain it was coming in the next minute, it had to be, was why these two guys would risk so much. Here their friends were dying. This was a very dangerous shipwreck to dive 230 feet down. They were going bankrupt doing this. They lost their marriages, both of these guys, and very nearly lost their lives on several occasions. So I kept waiting for the documentary to explain why two guys would risk so much for what seemed to be like just a footnote to history. And I thought, well, they're going to say there was uh, lost gold on board. You know, I'd always heard rumors that Hitler secreted all this gold out of Nazi Germany or that there were priceless artifacts. But they didn't say that. They just said these guys were compelled to do it. But at the end of the thing, when I still didn't feel like I understood why they were compelled to do it, I ran to my computer. I looked up John Chatterton's phone number in New Jersey and called him. And that's how it started. And so did you call him under the guise of, hey, I'm going to write about you for Esquire? Or were you, th were you thinking book already? I was thinking book immediately. And I had never thought book in my life before. Is that Would you say that's a good technique for finding a topic for a nonfiction book, like kind of scouring documentaries until one seems totally fascinating? And then if a book hasn't already been written on the topic, writing a book on it? I think it's a great approach, and it's a it's a good approach to use with old magazine stories and old newspaper articles. And you know, James, it's not even a terrible approach to use with books because sometimes uh, 
a writer will tell one version of a story or, or his or her take on a story, and there are other takes or there are other uh, viewpoints to it. So I think that's one of the main ways you go about finding a good story. How did John Chatterton survive financially while, while he was doing this? Clearly, there was no gold on a German U-boat. Like, how did he pay for his bills? Well, I think he, it came down to the nub for him. He was uh, using every penny he had saved and most of his paycheck to see this thing through. And, you know, I don't think he ever imagined it would take six years or cost so much in terms of lives or uh, fortune. But once he got started, he could not live with the idea, could not live with himself thinking he'd once had the chance to do this once in a lifetime thing. This is such a rare find, a virgin World War II U-boat in New Jersey waters. He wasn't willing to, to go on with his life um, having given up on it. So re he really, uh, as he explained to me the first time I talked to him, had no choice in the matter. And I related to that. That, that kind of felt like how I'd felt in certain points in my life. And like, did he try to get sponsors to help him? Like, clearly there's some historical interest, like maybe a museum could, would pay for him to do this. No, uh, neither he nor his partner, Richie Kohler, was helped at all. And I don't think they sought out any help. In fact, when they first found this, um, every Navy government expert and historian in the world insisted they could not have found what they said they found. It's just, according to history, established history, it just was impossible that they'd found what they found. So they were really in this on their own. Even if they showed like photographs and it, and it matched like every description of a German U-boat, like people, historians would still deny that it was a U-boat? When they finally started to bring up artifacts, you know, a dish with the eagle and swastika on it or videotape that showed all these human remains, that's when the, the experts started to pay attention. But by that point, uh, nobody was really willing to go in it with them if they even were willing to have people. This was their holy grail. They found this and they thought it was their uh, responsibility and their opportunity to answer the uh, history's questions. It was the holy grail also in the sense that it kind of defined their careers. Like John Chatterton became sort of famous as the diver who found this U-boat, in, in part because you helped make him famous, but, you know, also there was these documentaries and then he started a, a TV show. So, so this kind of defined his career after that. Right. This is such an unusual discovery and took so long and cost so much. And it captured people's imaginations. You know, there are very few things like a Nazi U-boat with dead German sailors inside to grab people. It's something that speaks to people across the board, men and women, kids and the elderly. Everybody was interested from the moment they made this discovery. They were even being written about, the, the discovery was even being written about in the supermarket tabloids. So this was, this was something that exploded in their lives. Well, how did it get to New Jersey? Well, this is one of the, the things they had to figure out. They knew virtually nothing about the U-boat war, but as they discovered that they could not just swim inside this wreck and pull out a tag or a piece of identification. They had to make themselves expert on uh, Hitler's U-boat war and U-boat tactics. And they soon learned that U-boats uh, were routinely sent to American shores. And they were shocked, James, to learn that in the early part of the war, U-boats would not only come to New Jersey, they would come so close that they would sometimes beach themselves on the sand and, and the sailors would climb out and push the U-boat back in. They were so close that they would raise their radio antennas and tune in New York jazz stations to listen to the music that was forbidden to them in Germany. And they would watch, you know, through binoculars, couples strolling on the boardwalk. 
So these guys were not just close. They were literally on our shores. And once Chatterton and Kohler started to understand what was going on, then that's the first steps they took in piecing together this mystery. This sounds naive, but could they have potentially invaded D.C.? Well, the, the questions of invasion are, are so interesting. And, you know, there were there were people tried and convicted of aiding uh, Germans in the U-boat landings or attempted landings here. We were so vulnerable to these U-boats uh, at a certain point that there were volunteer pilots, you know, guys who were dentists and accountants flying planes at night looking for them. That's That's how helpless we were to them. But as they say, the hunters became the hunted when allied technology and ingenuity kind of figured out uh, the U-boats and cracked the Enigma code. That's when um, the U-boats became sitting ducks. And by the end of the war, when this U-boat sailed for New Jersey, the statistical life expectancy of a U-boat sailor was less than 60 days. These guys were in big, big trouble. And that's what Chatterton and Kohler were learning when they started to narrow down which wreck this might be. So they were learning it, meaning somebody before them knew about this. Why did the historians deny that this was possible? Well, because all of established history that was written right after uh, World War II insisted uh, that the U-boat they thought they'd found had sunk somewhere way far away, thousands of miles away. And it seemed you know, to be a very accurate and general account of things. And like most of us, Chatterton and Kohler believed that the historical textbooks were accurate. When it started to occur to them that there may have been basic mistakes made in the general histories written about the U-boat war and about general history as it is, that's when worlds opened up to them. And that's when they really made their, their big breakthroughs. It does elicit this feeling of childlike adventure of diving into the water and and unlocking history. Obviously, this is not something you get trained for in in school. You kind of have to say, hey, this is something I'm going to be passionate about. I can't not do this, and I'm going to go ahead and do it. Absolutely. And, the and they didn't give themselves a backstop. Like, they, like you said, they went broke and they lost their marriages. It reminds me of other people. Like I interviewed um, the stand-up comic Jim Norton once, and he basically said he, he, he specifically took jobs like tractor-trailer driver. So he had, he had nothing to fall back on if his career as a comedian didn't work. There's nothing that sobers the mind like having no safety net underneath. And these guys had nothing um, to fall back on. In fact, they were ruining the basic fundamentals of their life. I mean, they had to go to work every day. Chatterton was an underwater welder. He would do welding you know, in and around the waters of Manhattan. And Kohler was in the glass business. He would fix broken windows at KFCs and Burger Kings. So it was during the weekends that they had to use the money they were making on the job to go do this job that really no one in the world felt capable of doing. They had to learn military German. They had to contact U-boat aces in Germany. They had to be really first-rate historians and detectives, all while knowing that if um, the thing continued another year, that was it for them, and yet it kept continuing. And and John wasn't even a young man at, at this time, right? He was in his 40s. That's right, and this deep-sea wreck diving is not an old person's game. By Even by... Uh, your early 40s, you're basically out of it, mo- at least from what I've seen. Is that because is, lung lung pressure? Yeah, it's because of lung pressure. It's because the thing is so brutal 
on the body, but it's also in their sport, which is not participated in by very many people. They see so many fatalities. I mean, people are dying around them all the time. It's very, very dangerous to go deep in the ocean. It's cold. It's dark. It's disorienting. You have all kinds of issues with nitrogen building up in the bloodstream, causing narcosis and and, uh, decompression sickness or the bends. There are a thousand ways to die diving deep for shipwrecks. So by the time you're in your 40s, a lot of these guys have had enough of it. After they kind of solved the U-boat mystery, then, you know, you wrote your book, uh, even, you know, making it more famous what happened. It sounds like in between then and Pirate Hunters, when they decided to go for the pirate ship, John Chatterton and another guy, John Matera, uh, the one we talked about earlier who was involved with, you know, the mafia and then was a cop and so on, they decided to go for for a true treasure, like finding galleons, you know, s- old Spanish ships from the 1600s that were sunk and filled with, with gold. Right. That was uh, the ultimate score for these guys. And they believed they knew where the greatest treasure wreck that ever sank was lying. They had done historical research. They had uh, gathered cutting-edge equipment and believed, given um, John Matera's contacts in the Dominican Republic, that they could go find this. And that became um, their life mission. They were not going to buy a Dunkin' Donuts. They were not going to buy a laundromat or manage an apartment building. If they had an inkling that they could find the greatest treasure ship ever lost, that's what they were going to do no matter what that might cost them. And that's sort of the beginning of the story of Pirate Hunters. You know, there's a real interesting question in the beginning, which is why they chose to go for a pirate ship with negligible value. It had immense historical value, but it was uncertain how much monetary value. But they knew that the galleon, I don't know how to say the word, the galleon that they were going to go for had like $500 million worth of gold in it. Like, I I would choose to go for the gold. Right. And when somebody does something so counterintuitive – that they, you know, they risk looking for a $500 million ship to look for a pirate ship that might not be there and might not have anything on it. When something's counterintuitive like that, I know that's the first sign that I'm on to a good story. And the reason they did it fundamentally was because it was impossible to do. There had been only one pirate ship ever found and positively identified in history. There had been lots of galleons. And as valuable as that is, the fact that the thing was hard, the fact that the pirate ship was impossible, that's what spoke to them and that's what changed their plan. Let let, let me ask you a question because I'm going to play the devil's advocate for a second. Would you say there's an element of self-sabotage actually in choosing to go for the pirate ship instead of – $500 $500 million potentially waiting for them at the bottom of the ocean. Like they obviously they were ahead in the race for finding this valuable ship and they could always find that ship, make their money and then go for the pirate ship with, which had the big historical value. And, and we already see with John that he's willing to do anything to basically damage career, marriage, everything. <laughs> right. Did you sense maybe there was a, a, an element of self-sabotage there in his life? Well, you might think so, but I don't think that's quite what's going on with him. I think they made a, a pretty sober calculation about this. When, see, in the Dominican Republic at the time when this search started, when they decided to go searching for this great treasure ship, the Dominican Republic was one of only a handful of countries that still allowed private treasure hunters to work. But but time was of the essence because a lot of countries were signing on to a UNESCO agreement that forbid 
private treasure hunting. So these guys believed they had a limited amount of time to work. And by their calculation, and from what they knew and were told about this pirate ship, they thought this might take us two weeks, a month to find the pirate ship, but it might take us years to find the treasure ship. So they, they thought, let's knock out the pirate ship. This is the greatest possible shipwreck discovery in the world. There's nothing better, not a U-boat, not a treasure ship. There's nothing better than a golden age pirate ship, especially one captained by the pirate that was described to them. And, but they thought, let's do that. We'll get that done, and then we'll go look for the pirate ship. I think they believed that if they went for the treasure ship first, they may never get to the pirate ship, and that was unacceptable. So let me ask about that. So first, uh, the UNESCO thing. That agreement among countries, like where uh, you're not allowed to, basically the country owns any kind of treasure brought up. Won't wouldn't that discourage anybody from ever diving for treasure? Like, how's it's almost like the Laffer curve in in taxation. Like, how's any government going to benefit by essentially disincentivizing all treasure hunters to hunt for treasure? Well, James, you got at the heart of the matter immediately. That's the treasure hunters primary argument that if we don't do it, no one's going to do it. See, um, a lot of archaeologists, uh, especially academic archaeologists, are against the idea of uh, private treasure hunting because they don't believe um, that private treasure hunters would take the kind of care and salvage or preservation that they would. But if the private guys don't go, the guys who have a lot of money and can raise a lot of money, nobody goes because treasure hunting is exquisitely expensive. And so, if guys like Chatterton and Matera don't look, no one's looking anymore. And that's part of what the race against time was when these guys went to look. Uh, by, by the way, uh, very indirectly, I helped fund uh, Odyssey Marine, which was in that business, of course. Absolutely. And they're a publicly traded company. They're a fantastically interesting company, but even uh, they are very limited in the places in the world they're still allowed to operate. No, and then it was they're just stuck in uh, court battles you know, saying who trying to figure out who owns what. Exactly. They found a $500 million treasure themselves and in the end had a huge battle with Spain over the rights to the treasure. Okay. So here's the other question though. The two Johns, John Chatterton and John Matera, think they have uh, some insight on where to find another galleon with a huge amount of treasure. Why didn't they feel some tension that, oh my gosh, if we figured this out, someone else could figure this out. Like there's so much money at stake. It's not like nobody else is looking and then just they are looking. Like there had to be a lot of people looking for for this ship. Well, you would think so, but it turns out that not as many or not nearly as many people are looking as you would expect. To find even mention of the ship they were looking for, you have to go into these uh, Spanish archives that are buried away. And John Matera had a contact with a person who was a, a legendary researcher who had done um, incredible, intricate research in Spain for years and years. So it's the connections, it's rumors, and then it's the hard, hard work of history that Matera did, coupled with the fact that you need really expensive equipment that's very, very difficult to operate. It's technologically cutting edge. So you have to be able to afford and operate that machinery and then have the funds to go do it. So to put all that stuff together, the history, the technology, and the investment, uh, it excludes almost everyone. So, so again, though, that's fascinating about John Matera because here's a guy, nightclub owner slash potential mafia slash police officer who also happens to be an extraordinary historian like in pirate hunters you have him going to seville and doing research researching in like 
you know, long lost archives and then calling up his connections in the antiquarian book industry and meanwhile becoming an expert in, in all this cutting edge diving technology. Like, again, it sort of exemplifies that, you know, there's no such thing as one career anymore. Like you kind of have to demonstrate excellence in many careers to have this kind of success. That's exactly right. And that's what he did. And he never uh, gave up on any of these careers. You could argue that he had all of the careers in a certain way all the time because he never let go of any of them. Well, he must let go of being a cop. Yeah, that he did, but only to start his own private security agency. So he kind of graduated from beat cop to security guard to being one of the highest paid personal bodyguards in the world. And he looks the part too, James, by the way. This is one of the nicest, friendliest guys I've ever met and probably the first guy I wouldn't mess with physically. But but he stayed, you know, he stayed a tough guy even as he stayed a historian his whole life. So they have these two choices, treasure ship, um, but that could take years because I guess, you know, for me, I, and again, I don't understand. I sort of feel like, okay, they they have a rough idea. They have all this equipment. How come they can't just sort of fly low over the water and use the equipment to figure out where all the metal is, all the iron is that where, that would suggest a ship is underwater. So I don't really understand why it couldn't be like a fast find. Well, these things with the galleons are not fast finds usually. They could take years, and I think that was their concern. I believe that if they were convinced that they could find this galleon that they thought was worth half a, a billion dollars or more, and they could do it in the matter of a couple months, then they, they might have gone for that. But it was altogether possible that that was going to take them years, and they believed the pirate ship was going to be an easy find at first. It, of course, proved to be anything but, but I think that was their uh, outlook going in. And, and they thought it was going to be an easy find because this famous treasure hunter, Bowden, basically had kind of very specific information about this pirate ship. Exactly. And just like in Shadow Divers, history seemed to be very clear about what had happened. And the... Uh, pirate ship was believed by you know 325 years of historians and accounts to be sunk at a very small island in the Dominican Republic it's an island that you and I could walk across in probably 6 minutes wow um, well, so so why did anyone else before then uh, go looking for this pirate ship well partly because the pirate's name and the story had been lost to time only a select few people knew about the pirate but also because it looked um, very likely that you were going to need this new cutting-edge kind of equipment to finally find the wreck. It's not something you could have done really back in the 70s or 80s and certainly not 100 years ago. Yet, yet with the information that Bowdoin had, I got the sense that you could find the ship. Like he knew specifically the island. Now he was – it turned out he was slightly wrong, but he knew specifically the island and he knew it was 24 feet under. So why couldn't I just go out and like even without any equipment – you know, go 10 feet under and see a pirate ship. Well, that's what I asked at first, but it turns out these ships, whether they're galleons or pirate ships, are not lying on the surface like the U-boat was. Often they're buried under mud and sand, so you might swim right over it and not detect it. It takes a real experienced salver to know what, what he's looking for and to tell the uh, the garbage from the real thing. The other problem was that Bowden. Uh, at his age and with his experience, didn't use things like side scan sonar or magnetometers or satellite imagery. When he um, befriended Chatterton and Matera, it seemed like a perfect match. These were the two guys who could do it. And I think they all believed it was then going to be a matter of routine. 
Right, because he knew kind of the right, or it turned out he was wrong, but he thought he knew the right beach to look at, and it was just a matter of using this equipment to find the right spot. But it does suggest, again, how difficult it is, even in a small space of water, because uh, he identified it, what he thought was pretty accurately, and again, he had to find professionals to actually dig it up, and and it's hard. That's right, and it's hard enough if you know where it is. But if you're wrong and history is wrong, as it was in this case, then it becomes almost impossible to find a shipwreck. I remember when I was working on Shadow Divers, and these guys were telling me if something's even a mile away from where you think it is, it could take you months. And that just didn't seem possible to me. But when something's underwater and buried especially, even small errors can make huge differences. I guess because people don't really understand three-dimensional thinking in some sense. So when you say it could be a mile away, you're talking about like a cubic mile. And so that's like this cube where you can go in like a billion different directions and it's hidden anyway. So it's going to be just hard to find. That's exactly right. Nonetheless, James, when when Chatterton and Matera set out to try to find the pirate ship in the place that history dictated it would be, they were pretty sure very, very quickly that history was wrong because their equipment was so sensitive. It was pulling up license plates and barbecue grills and uh, all kinds of things, a screwdriver. That's how sensitive this stuff is. And yet they weren't finding cannons or rifles or any kinds of the trademarks of a pirate ship. And so early on, they suggested uh, to Bowden that this thing is not where history says it is, but history seemed so clear that this was uh, confusing to everybody. This is where, and I, I don't want to start giving away, you know, what you write about in the book because the, the book is such a page turner. But I want to ask you a real quick question also about Bowden. They walk in his house and they basically find uh, five million dollars worth of coins in his bathtub, <laughs> like. <laughs> What what kind of guys were these treasure hunters? It didn't seem like they lived wealthy lives. Like, do you know any of these treasure hunters who kind of build palaces after they found their treasures? No, I've not met one of them yet. These guys, even though they live a life dedicated to treasure, don't seem to be in it for the money. And that's especially true of the successful ones. The unsuccessful ones seem in it to the, for the money to me. But the guys who actually find it, and they are few and far between, treasure is very, very tough to find. But the ones who do find it, they are on an adventure. And they a lot of them live very lonely lives. They're out at sea a lot. People don't understand or relate to what they're doing. And another thing is they are often, when they find a treasure ship, dealing with a huge mass of tragedy. These ships almost always go down with huge loss of life disaster. And so when you're taking treasure off these ships, you're kind of taking it from the people who died. And there are a lot of interesting emotions and psychology mixed up in all that. The ones I've seen who found treasure, I can't think of one of them who lives a huge high life. What they do with the treasure often is use it to go on their next treasure hunt. I can't really imagine myself in that position, but I would imagine that, okay, people are dead for 400 years. I'm picking gold all from around them. I, I, I hate to say this, but I probably wouldn't care that much about <laughs> the fact that they're dead because they're 400 years old anyway. They would have died anyway. Um, I said, but maybe I said I'm the, wrong if it's like right in front of me. I said the same thing, James. And then uh, I remember uh, these guys telling me that when you're out offshore 80 miles and you've been offshore for two weeks, 
and it's three in the morning. You start to hear voices and you start to hear sounds. And these are guys who are brave guys. And the idea of what happened to these people in their last moments and how they were taken by sharks or drowned or separated from their families during these storms when the, when the ships broke up, you start to hear things and see things, sometimes so much that you'll grab a gun and go on deck to answer those voices. So it's hard to, you know, it's hard to say sitting here what, what we might do. I, I kind of agree with you. It's, it's 400 years, and if you don't take it, no one's taking it. It's not like it's, it's going back to the families or going back to the victims. It's down there unless you take it. Nonetheless, they hear these voices. It's interesting to me, too. I mean, we've talked about your background and how you kind of you were going down one very standard direction, like Harvard Law School, law, and then suddenly, bam, you start writing about pirates. And then now we, we, we look at Matera and Chatterton, who had similar experiences. They were, you know, one was a police officer. The other was a, a commercial diver for welding. But then what was interesting, there's this third layer, which is the pirate ship itself was run by this guy, Joseph Bannister. And his story was, I would say, exactly the same as yours, Robert. Like, yes. And why don't you tell his background a little bit? So this guy is like a hardcore pirate. Like he would kill people and take their gold. But how did he start off? Well, he started off as a noble English gentleman, the captain of a merchant ship that carried cargo between London and Port Royal, Jamaica. Port Royal is known as the wickedest city on earth. It's an incredible story by itself, which I go into in the book, Port Royal. But Joseph Bannister had it made in life. He was a, a gentleman. He was a well-respected Englishman who worked for wealthy ship owners who gave him control of the ship, the Golden Fleece. And for years, he sailed the Golden Fleece between London and Port Royal, carrying things like hides and sugar and indigo. Never a problem, never anything but the most upstanding gentleman. And then one day, for reasons nobody could really understand or could you know, decipher, he turned pirate. He stole the Golden Fleece. He put together a ferocious first-rate pirate crew and went on a pirating rampage and the first, what, what, what does that mean? Does that mean he went to all the other merchant ships and started like raiding them and stealing their gold and killing their captains? Not only did he go and, and steal from merchant ships, but he would go on raids with other pirates, sometimes history thinks, into cities. So this guy was a prime, top-ranking kind of pirate who did impossible things. In fact, they caught him once, and it was early in his career as a pirate, and brought him back to Port Royal. We're going to hang him. Um, he beat the charges by bribing the jury and then made his escape and stole the golden fleece a second time. And that was just the first of the impossible things he did. This guy was one in a million. But he, he's sort of like the hand solo of like 1680. Yeah, he, he was unbelievable. And when Chatterton and Matera started to understand this guy through their research, because when they couldn't find his ship, in the place it was supposed to be, it ultimately occurred to them, we better understand this guy's character if we're going to understand this guy's ship. And when they started to look into what made Bannister tick, who he was from the inside out, they discovered this guy who was unlike any pirate they'd ever read about. He was hanging out so much in Port Royal that I'm sure there were other pirates as well as merchant seamen. I mean, I'm sure it was a mixture of all sorts of characters hanging out in this place. Maybe he, maybe he kind of felt, since this is where he was most of the time, as opposed to 
England, maybe he wanted to somehow impress or, or rise up in the social hierarchy of Port Royal by becoming a pirate, which was probably the most esteemed you could be in, in this area. Well, it was a town of pirates. I mean, that's for sure. And there was nowhere in the world more sympathetic to pirates than Port Royal. With, you know, that was a huge risk to take. Um, and, and for the esteem of, you know, three or 4,000 people, the more Chatterton and Matera thought about this guy, the more I think he seemed like them. That this was a person who had his soft landing made, that everything was in front of him, and as long as he played it safe, he was going to be fine. And that was true of Joseph Bannister. He could have retired not too long after this and gone and owned a house by the sea and watched the sea with his dog by his side, but that wasn't going to be a real life to him. And that's what they started to see in him. And if you look at Chatterton and Matera and know something about their lives— then you'll see that that was exactly the same for them. It was not acceptable to just ride out their days. They had to do something big and they had to do something hard. And to them, the same was true of the pirate banister. So, you know, again, I don't want to give away anything about the book. Like it's it's fascinating to kind of follow these guys along the way in their hunt for Bannister and his ship. But I, I do want to mention also, you wrote another uh, very interesting book, Crashing Through, about this guy, Mike May, who went from being uh, blind since the age of three to suddenly recovering his blindness, I guess, surgically. And, and I want to get back to Pirate Hunters in a second, but I just I don't want to forget about crashing through. Oh, that's that's kind of you. I, I viewed that. That doesn't sound like the same kind of story as Shadow Divers or Pirate Hunters. Right. But I, I viewed it in very much the same way because this was a guy who'd been blind since age three. And at age 46, was given the chance to have a very, very rare stem cell transplant surgery that would give him vision. So you'd think that a person after a lifetime of blindness being given vision, that would be the greatest human experience possible, the best thing ever. In fact, there were only 15 cases before him in which that had happened. In, in all 15 cases, the results were disastrous emotionally for the person. So because it, it has to do with the fact that most of vision is done in the brain and you cannot teach a person who's been blind for life, you can't train an adult brain to do the massive, massive learning work required to understand depth and shadows and shading and all kinds of other things. So when I found Mike May, the only living person I'd known who'd been blind for life and then gained vision, I had to know his story. Well, his results um, in, in the immediate aftermath of his surgery were just as disastrous as the others, but he turned his life around completely. But the reason he did it, James, he refused his surgery for a year before jumping into it. And I remember having conversations in college, would you rather be dead or blind? That's how important vision seemed to people. But he said no for a whole year because his life was so fulfilling and so full without vision. He was a real go-getter. He had done incredible things as a blind person. So he said no for a year. But ultimately, his curiosity got the better of him. And here was another situation of another guy who said, I really don't want to keep going in my life having had the chance to do something that fewer people have done than stepped on the surface of the moon uh, and said, I'm just not going to do it because it's so frightening, because it could kill me, because it could overwhelm me. So here was another person uh, that spoke to his curiosity and did something very, very difficult. So did any of these people or did, did Mike May, did, did he able to recognize shapes and, and kind of build the part of his brain needed to uh, recognize depth and understand what he was looking at? Like if you, no, he, if you, if you stood in front of him, would he say, hi, Robert? 
No, in fact, if his wife stood in front of him, he wouldn't recognize her, although he can sink free throw after free throw or play frisbee with you. It's a very strange thing what the brain can learn and can't learn, but he cannot uh, see really any better than his 15 predecessors could see. What's different about Mike May is that he's got this will inside him to uh, overcome things and to make the best of things. And so he has taught himself in the seven or eight years since his surgery uh, several shortcuts, tricks, tips that he uses to go around the limitations of his vision. And he continues to be really the only success story. The guy is an unbelievable guy who is the first one really not to be crushed uh, by the situation. The, his predecessor, the, the most recent case before his, which was from the 50s in England, they said that the guy died of disappointment, if you can imagine that, that his vision was so thrilling to him in the first days after the surgery. But then uh, about a week later, he showed up and told the doctors who were caring for him that uh, he had been crushed psychologically and emotionally because he had seen chipped paint on a light pole. And when they said, why would chipped paint crush you? He said, because all my life I'd imagined the world, the sighted world to be beautiful and perfect. And now I know that it's not. Within a couple of years, he was dead and they listed the cause of death as disappointment. So that's the kind of thing Mike May was up against. And he came through it beautifully, but not after a, a huge kind of struggle. Wow. That is really intense. Like right, right now, how's he doing? He's doing fantastic. I actually had lunch with him last week here in Chicago and he's, he's terrific. You'd never know that he'd been through something that uh, was so rare and so difficult. Um, he's he's a champ. So okay, so this book's coming out. It's not the average nonfiction book, I would say. It's this thriller nonfiction book. It's like its own. You've you've defined your own genre. You know, it's being compared to John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, that that type of book. How are you going to market this? Well, turns out marketing is a different thing than it was when Crashing Through and Shatter Divers came out. Yeah, so it's in, totally different now. Totally different, James. And it's, it, it really is. It feels like I was you know, taken from the 17th century myself and dropped into the modern day when I, when I realized how much is involved with methods that didn't even exist five or six years ago. I'm working with Ryan Holiday, who you know. Yeah, Ryan's right. been on the podcast twice. Right. He's, he's brilliant. And I'm, try, you know, I'm trying to, uh, to get the word out in, in all kinds of different ways and, and to speak you know, about my book in, uh, in every way that I know how. Well, I, I wish you a lot of luck. I mean, the book's great. And I really, what really touched me in the book was the parallel between your story, which of course is not mentioned at all in the book. Uh, you know, a lot of these books, kind of the author puts himself in there as a character, but you're not really in there as a character. You're, you're just sort of lurking behind as the, as the author. But there's definitely, when I researched your story, there's definitely a parallel between your story, the main characters of the book, the, the, the treasure hunters, the pirate ship hunters, and the pirate himself. You all had kind of mainstream careers, and you just dived off the cliff and, and did what you wanted to do. I think that's true, and uh, I, I'm grateful to you for appreciating that. It's it's been a thrill just being around guys who will leap into the abyss and even to know about them like Bannister who did really the same thing. So uh, to be on that kind of adventure, at least even from the outside looking in is to me what it was all about when I quit uh, my law job way back when. What's, what's your next book going to be about? Do you know yet? Well, I'm, I'm investigating great adventures, but when you have um, 
when you write about adventures like this, they don't come along very often. So uh, I'm, I'm on the lookout as we speak. All right. I'll keep my eye out open for you as well. If I hear anything, if I hear of any like buried treasure on Mars or anything like that. That's great. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Robert. Thanks for spending the time. And the book is called Pirate Hunters, The Search for the Lost Treasure Ship of a Great Buccaneer. Uh, by the way, technically, was Joseph Bannister a buccaneer? Well, he could be he could be referred to as a buccaneer, but really a pirate is the is the greatest way to to describe him. There are all kinds of different definitions I go into in the book, but he was uh, a real golden age pirate in every sense of the word. Oh, and you know what we didn't get into, which I'll, I'll encourage people to. This is another reason people should read the book. But the the subculture of pirates on a pirate ship was incredible, and the way you described it, and kind of. I mean, basically every Fortune 500 company should learn from how a pirate ship is managed because <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I agree with you. And that was something I had no clue about whatsoever. I knew about pirates what I knew from the movies. And so I really, even though intellectually I would have told you, no, I don't think it's like a Johnny Depp movie. That's exactly what I pictured it to be like. Yeah, me but too. The, but the, these guys were way ahead of their time, James. And I think they're ahead of our times in many ways. Um, and that's another thing that grabbed these guys when they're researching and actually led them uh, to breakthroughs on the search for the pirate ship. Yeah, it's so it, it was really fascinating. I'll, I'll just mention one thing, which is that the the pirate captain would not, and this this will be a, a, a very common re reversal from what's common in let's say corporate America. That the pirate captain doesn't make more than two or three times more than his lowest employee. <laughs> Right, and he could be thrown out at any moment by vote of the crew, and the, the lowliest deckhand uh, could be the deciding vote. And that was true even if the guy owned his own ship like Bannister did. They'd throw him out any time, or worse. That's incredible. Well, okay, Robert, thanks so much again. Pirate Hunters, The Search for the Lost Treasure Ship of a Great Buccaneer by Robert Curson. And uh, Robert, say hello to your brother, Ken, who's one of my all-time favorite people. You guys are, are quite a crew. James, thank you so much. This was a huge honor for me. I can't tell you what a, a big fan of yours I am and how you've inspired me. So this is, and it's been about the best interview I ever did. So I really thank you so much. Thanks, Robert. I really appreciate you saying that. Thanks. Great. Take I'll care. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.